Well, it really is great to be back with you all. Um, we had a wonderful trip, fun trip. Um, I'm coming back really refreshed. I wouldn't say rested uh, after all that walking and all that driving, but I would say uh, refreshed and renewed and excited to be back. Um, was down there just really inspired uh, by by what was going on there and being there. And, and if you've been to Disney, you know it, it's just a different world. You know, you're in just this other world and you, you don't think about the rest of the world while you're down there. And I think uh, I'm a person, I'm a pastor that preaches a lot about rest and refreshment. And that was just really valuable. Um, I think between the politics sermon series I was doing and getting stuff done with the lift and it's just been a busy summer of go, go, go. Um, wrapping up my dissertation at this point. Uh, and so it was nice to get away and uh, refresh. Uh, I was also really inspired just by the, the brilliance of, of Walt Disney. I mean, wasn't he just a genius of a person? Um, his understanding of story, that he would go back and look at these old stories like Snow White and Cinderella and would retell them in such a fresh new way. You know, we miss the fact that when Walt Disney did Snow White, there'd never been a movie that was cartoon before. Cartoon was only really used for slapstick comedy. Um, everybody thought cartoons could make people laugh. He was the first person to think that maybe cartoons could make people cry. Um, just this, this creativity when it came to story and a, a creativity when it came to symbols that when he wrote his stories, he wrote characters and he wrote images and, and pictures of good and bad and poison apples and thimbles. Um, he was actually one of the first person to make a lot of money doing merchandising off of those films. Um, so he, he understood story and he understood symbol and it, he also really understood experience. That he didn't want people to just hear the stories, he wanted them to experience the story, to live in another world. And so he wanted to make a theme park, not one that was kind of weird and smelly like a, an amusement park you may have been to when you were a kid, but a place that was clean and fun where you could go and experience those stories. And so you could go on a ride like Peter Pan and, and live through the movie again. Um, some of the experiences turned into movies, right? I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion, a lot of the, the experiences actually became stories in themselves. And he understood when he built those that they were symbols, right? If you ever go down there, every park has a symbol. It's either got a castle in the middle or a tree of life, an animal kingdom, something that sort of symbolically is the center of that park. Um, he also understood soundtrack, right? Everywhere you go at Disney, you're hearing Disney songs. And uh, you understand the soundtrack. That's actually a very Jewish way of thinking, by the way. That, that you would see yourself in a story. Um, you think about the Passover celebration for people who were Jewish. They wanted to experience and they, they wanted to retell the story of the Passover, the Exodus, right? And uh, how did they do it? Well, they did it with a lot of symbols, with uh, with with bread and with cups and with different tastes and different smells and candles. And um, they wanted to experience it, experience the symbols and sing the songs because it, it put them in the story. I think that's actually a very Christian way of thinking, too. I think we are a story based faith and uh, we, we concrete this story with a lot of symbols like the giant cross we have up here. Um, and. I think we're, we're here as in worship to experience some of that story and make it our own story. And our hymns become our soundtrack. You know, in a little bit, 
we're going to sing of the old rugged cross. And that's just, that's the retelling of the story. That's the experiencing, the soundtrack of the story. Um, so it's very, very just inspiring to be in the middle of that. And it's actually kind of what I want to do today. I want to take an Old Testament story and look at the symbol and look at our own experience in that story, kind of the way Walt Disney would. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, Genesis chapter 32, the story is the story of Jacob, and it's probably a, a decently familiar story to you. It's Jacob wrestling with God. Genesis chapter 32, and I'm starting in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford at Jabbok. He took them, sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel did not eat the sinew on the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Here ends the reading of God's word. What a strange story. Jacob wrestles with this man. Is it God? Is it an angel? And he receives from him a blessing, but ends with a limp. What are we to make of such a strange story? To understand this story, you've got to understand how we got here. You've got to know who Jacob is. There was this man named Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Remember, he was promised to be the father of a nation at an old age. He was asked by God to sacrifice this son. But in the end, he doesn't have to do it. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. They're twins. Esau refers in the Hebrew language to the idea of being hairy. Esau was born with lots and lots of red hair, and he's the firstborn. Jacob means supplanter, and he is born right after his brother, but, but the text says he grabs onto the heel of his brother. He, he's actually nipping at his heels as he comes out. And so his name is supplanter. Esau is the manly man. The hairy one, the hunter, favored by his father. He goes out and he kills the game and he brings it back and makes good stew and good meals. He's the guy that runs the grill. He's the guy that does the hunting. Jacob is, stays at home. He is a little bit the mama's boy. Seems to be quite favored by his mother, in fact. 
Well, his father Isaac is about to die, and Isaac says to Esau, go out, kill some game, make me a stew that I may bless you before I die. But Jacob's mother, Rebekah, hears this and quickly decides on a plan. He, she makes soup for Isaac, very good stew for Isaac out of game that they apparently already had. And then they disguise Jacob as Esau because Isaac is going blind. So what they do is they put goat hair on, uh, on his sleeves so that his arm hair seems like goat hair and on his neck right here, which always begs the question when I read this passage, how hairy was Esau, right? How hairy is Esau that goat hair is used in your disguise for your blind father? The first Sasquatch right there in the Bible is Esau. By the way, Esau is a great name for a big hairy dog. You ever get a big hairy dog named Esau? I always wanted to do that. Um, so, but Isaac's a little suspicious, but he does go with it. He gets fooled and he blesses Jacob with the blessing that was meant for Esau. So, Jacob gets out of the way. Esau comes in finally with his, with his game, ready to make his stew. And uh, Isaac said, wait a minute. I just blessed somebody. Some hairy person was already in here and got your blessing. And uh, um, right there, Esau knows and Isaac knows that he's been fooled. But Isaac won't take his word back. He's already blessed Jacob and that's the blessing that he's going to give. And so Esau swears right there that he's going to kill his brother. But Rebecca, who I don't know how, actually hears all this happen too. She must be the kind of nosy one in the family, right? She knows everything that's going on. She hears that Esau threatens Jacob, and she gets Jacob the heck out of Dodge. She run, he runs, he gets away, goes to some relatives, and stays away from his brother Esau. God appears to Jacob in a dream and promises to bless him with the blessing promised to his grandfather Abraham. Now think about that. God honors the stolen birthright. God honors the word of Isaac, even though it was given unjustly. And then in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob makes a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in, this, in the way I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give, I will give a full tenth to you. Notice the promise of Jacob. Jacob is a scoundrel. Notice the promise that he makes with God. If you will do this, then I will serve you. If. He's always conditional. Always transactional with God. If God, if you, if you bring me through this, you give me food, give me shelter, give me what I want, then I will glorify you. So Jacob flees. He meets a woman named Rebecca that he really wants to marry. Uh, he works seven years to marry her, and then her father tricks him. He gets a little bit too much to drink that night, wakes up in the morning and finds he is actually married to her sister, Leah. I always tell couples at my weddings, marriage is a commitment best made sober. So he wakes up, he's got Leah, he's been tricked. Now he's got to work another seven years to marry Rebecca, the one that he truly wanted. Between the two of them, at this point in the story that we read, they have 11 sons. They're going to have 12 sons that would eventually be the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's flocks do well. His, ooh, 
His family is growing. He's doing well. But um, there's one sort of question mark still on Jacob's life. And that's his brother Esau. So this is now maybe, I don't know, we know he's worked for 14 years. We know he did some traveling in there. We know that he, maybe 20 years later, he still hasn't talked to his brother Esau. He still doesn't know if any day Esau might show up to follow through on his promise to kill him. So Jacob sends word to Esau saying he is traveling and wants to find favor in his brother's sight. He sends the people ahead to give the message because he's not gutsy enough to go himself. And they come back and this is the only thing they tell him. They tell him, your brother is coming with 400 men to meet you. Now what do you think is going to happen? What's Jacob thinking? I'm dead. I'm dead. These 400 guys are going to come in here and they are going to wipe me out. So Jacob divides his family and his belongings among two camps. Okay, he puts one camp here, one camp here. One, and so that if, if Esau does come and attack him, they'll, he'll wipe out half of his family, but not the whole thing. This is Jacob's plan. Jacob is a scoundrel from the get-go, and he always has, is through this story. Okay, what does Jacob do, though? In the passage, it says Jacob waits on the other side of the river. So he's got his two families and all his possessions out here divided, and he's back here. So no matter what happens, he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. And he prays this prayer. Oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Jacob. Oh, Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with my children. But you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So here's Jacob. He's back, he's praying, he's got his family out there, but he's back and hiding behind the river. But notice his prayer. If you go through all the other prayers of Jacob, up until this point, you're going to find they're always if, then. If God does this, then this. If God does this, then I will do this. But this is the first prayer where there's no if. Where he finally acknowledges, God, you have really blessed me. You have really taken care of me. And you have really given me so much. Please help me. Please help me. This is where he really acknowledges that the Lord is Lord. That the Lord is not just the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob, but it's his Lord. So he stays there overnight. He's waiting. He's got his two families out here kind of waiting to see what Esau is going to do when he arrives tomorrow. And a man comes. Uh, we're not sure what, who this man is. But the man begins to somehow attacks Jacob and they start to wrestle. They're pretty evenly matched. They wrestle uh, till the morning. Jacob seems to have a slight advantage. He won't let the man go. But he also can't seem to get enough advantage to end the match. So the man touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. And now he has this limp and this pain, but he won't let go. Jacob hangs on trying to receive a blessing. Finally, the the man says, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. And the man says, not anymore. You're now Israel, which means God will persist or perseverance or persevere God. That's what it really means. 
The word can refer to, to wrestling, to persevering in a wrestling match. For as the text says, Jacob has striven with God and prevailed. The man will not tell Jacob his name, but he names the place Peniel, which means face of God. And what he says is, I've seen the Lord face to face. Esau finally gets there. We won't, don't know what the battle's going to happen. Or, but Esau walks up and embraces his brother, falls on his neck and kisses him, and they weep together. He meets Jacob's family, and they are reunited. Esau's done pretty well for himself. He's a hard worker. He's made a really good life for himself, and God has really blessed him. But he says one of the things that he lost was his brother, and he's happy to have his brother back. There are so many questions that this text doesn't answer. For instance, who is this man? An angel? God? Uh, a lot of scholars have tried to say this is, this is Jesus. We know Jesus, didn't, Jesus always existed. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Maybe this is God in Jesus. But the miraculousness of the story is left unexplained. And I do not think the meaning of the story is that we can wrestle with God and win. I am not sure that's a battle you want to take on in your life. Actually, I'm not even sure if we read the text carefully that Jacob really did win. It seems to me that Jacob has been wrestling with God his whole life. He's been selfish. He's been out for himself the whole way, trying to get ahead. He turned away from his father and from his brother. He got tricked himself in his marriages. He's lived his life afraid of Esau, understanding deep down that he deserves what Esau intends to do to him. In the story, God submits to Jacob in a wrestling match. But I think ultimately the story is about Jacob submitting to God in his life. This is the day of Jacob's humble pie. This is the day where Jacob gets a new name. He gets a new self. He stops saying if and just finally lets God be God. And just ask God for what he, what he wants instead of striving to get it on its own. But he also gets a weakness. He gets a limp. I wonder if Jacob kept that limp. I wonder if Jacob continued to limp for his whole life. If he used a cane the rest of his life. And when a storm came in and he felt that soreness in his hip. It would get achy and he would remember his struggle with God. Have you ever wrestled with God? Have you ever fought God's will or God's plan? Have you ever refused to accept the things that God has given you and wanted something else instead? Have you ever been a scoundrel trying to get your own way in this world? You might say, if. God, if you give me this, I will do this. If you give me what I ask, if, or if you take away my pain, or if you give me this promotion, you bring my son or daughter back, then I will follow you. But God, a relationship with God doesn't work well on if. Sometimes the question isn't if. Sometimes it's why. God, why did this happen? Why did I have to go through that? Why didn't you answer my prayer? Sometimes the question is when. When will you save me, God? When will you answer my prayer? When will my pain go away? When will my child go back? Come, come back to me. Sometimes it's how. How am I going to pay these bills? How could I possibly do what God is calling me to do with all these other responsibilities and questions? And questions and hesitations with God. Whatever you're wrestling, 
Sometimes what God has to do to get us is give us a limp. Sometimes God uses pain and difficulty to drive us to him. Blessings sometimes come in wrestling. Blessings sometimes come with limps. I'm amazed as I read books about the great pillars of our faith throughout history, how many of them had considerable ailments. Paul talks about a thorn in his side. A lot of scholars believe Paul went blind, which if you were a traveler and a preacher in those days and you did a lot of your work through writing letters to churches, going blind would be a terrible frustration. John Calvin had what what could only be described as irritable bowel syndrome. So for all the work that Calvin did in his life, he was fairly miserable most of the time. Charles Spurgeon had very serious gout and that made him just, just not function for days at a time in the pain and also went through terrible bouts of depression. Some of the strongest people I know are spiritual giants who walk around with old wrestling wounds. They walk around with injuries. They walk around with pain. They walk around with some suffering that God has used to shape and mold them. God uses our pain sometimes and our struggles to shape us. And when we look back at our lives, the hardest times are often the ones that shaped us the most. The difficult times are the glue for our marriages and our friendships. The challenges are the defining moments of our church and of our businesses. Remember the limp of Jacob. Let it be a symbol for you of this story and let it be your experience. If you are wrestling with God, I would suggest that you not take the strategy of Jacob and wrestle with and wrestle with and wrestle with God until God finally gives you a limp. Submit. Let God be God. Let the sacrifice of Jesus be the stripes and bruises of your life. And when pain comes, do not fear God's furnace, God's hammer, Or God's chisel. Let him shape you by it. As he did Jacob. Let us pray. Father God. uh, We have gone through a lot in our lives. Many of us have run from you. Many of us have tried to do things our own way. Bring us back to you. Give us a limp if you must. That we would trust and rely on you to be God. Pray this in Jesus name. Amen.